Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Seth Nicholas Johnson. That's right. Joe is still out on parental leave. Uh, he and his wife are somewhere in the, the zombie land of, uh, of, of early parenthood. Uh, they're they're completely in the dark. I haven't heard from him in a few days, so I think everything. I think he's in the upside down basically right now, uh, where where up is up is down, down is up. Uh, sleep takes place whenever it can be uh, obtained. Oof. Uh, now, how long does this period last? Do you know, Rob? Like 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 the like baby won't sleep through the night phase. I I, I have no idea. <laughs> um, I, I'm not certain either. I I think it. To, to some extent, it varies from child to child, and yeah, and I, I'm, I'm more knowledgeable about sort of like general trends in in child sleep habits, and I know that 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 of course is going to vary a lot from kid to kid. Uh, I, I, my wife and I are fortunate that our our child has always been a, a very very committed sleeper, <laughs> but uh, but I know that's that's uh, not always the case. Well, well, best of luck to Joe right now in his, uh, you know, parental uh, duties right now. And I'm, I'm sure he is spending his free time listening to this podcast. So hello, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you joined us on Tuesday, then you know that we began discussing some of this year's winners of the Ig Nobel Prizes. Uh, this is a series of awards that are given out each year by the Scientific Humor Journal 
the Annals of Improbable Research that has been edited for many years now by Mark Abrams. And their stated purpose is to, quote, honor achievements that make uh, people laugh and then make them think. And so every year on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, since I don't know how long, I don't know how long we've been doing this, uh, we generally look at at least some of the winners from, from that given year and discuss them, talking about you know, why they're funny, what's important about the studies, what's interesting about the studies. And it's generally a great exercise because a lot of times the stuff that wins, it gets into an area that we might not otherwise explore or we wouldn't devote an entire episode to, certainly. And uh, yeah, I always learn something new. So this is the second episode, but this is one of those situations where if you miss Tuesday and you're already listening to today's episode, Thursday's episode, you're still probably good to go uh, because we're just looking at individual winners that uh, revolve around generally one study, maybe a handful of studies, but each one is kind of a self-contained topic. So go ahead, feel free to listen to this one and then go back and listen to Tuesday's. You'll be just fine. So last time I think we talked about three different studies, and once again, we're going to talk about three more today. Uh, Seth, why don't you start us off with your first selection? This one is the winner of the Safety Engineering Prize. Uh, this was uh, a paper written by Magnus Gens, and it was for developing a moose crash test dummy. And uh, th- this was out of Sweden. This was uh, published by the Swedish National Road and Transport Research Institute. And it's it's just fun to picture crash test dummies in general. Uh, do, do you remember in like the um, gosh late eighties, early nineties, there was a crash test dummy trend for some reason? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely remember this because I remember being a bit into it. Yeah, I, there were commercials right mm-hmm. that had crash test dummies, but they also at least made action figures yes. and, I, and little crash sets. And I think I might have even had one of the action figures. I, I had a couple of myself. I, I had a car and a, two of the, the, the action figures of the dummies. Because I believe they made an animated series based on it as well. I, my, my memory is kind of fuzzy about this. But I definitely remember the toys. And I definitely remember the live action commercials. And yeah, the, the toys were interesting because uh, they often had some sort of action where if you like pressed a button on their chest, you know, their arms would fly off or, or like the door would come off the cars mm-hmm. or something and yeah I, I hey trends for children are very strange but there was definitely a crash test dummy trend for children uh late 80s early 90s but but anyway oh no no i have to keep going on this because it, it raises the question now that i think about, i haven't really thought about this in a long time but mm-hmm. do you think that this was a situation where our desire as children to have action figures of dummies that were used in crash tests like industrial crash tests was this entirely manufactured this desire and and marketed to us or did they anticipate the fact that children would see these ads and say hey i want one of those this looks fun i'm in I, I think this was a Geico caveman situation where a company probably paid just for some standard like, you know, public service announcement ads made some very uh, colorful, friendly looking live action PSAs. And when they aired on television, for some reason, children really glommed onto it. Maybe they were aired during like mm. the Saturday morning cartoon breaks or something. And for some reason, maybe the bright colors, maybe the action, the goofy, like, you know, almost like live action Looney Tunes-esque-ness of like the explosions and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Maybe that just appealed to children so hard that some enterprising, you know, <laughs> business person went, I know, let- let's sell this to those kids, you know? So I, I, I think it was a television commercial that got too popular for its own good, and then they, they took advantage of it. That, that, that's my guess. 
Imagine if they had known they could have introduced a moose uh, crash test dummy as well. A talking moose, that would have been amazing. Oh, like a funny sidekick, Bullwinkle style. Yeah. Everyone would love that. <laughs> so, so, so that is what we're discussing today. Just picture a moose crash test dummy and why they would need it. And here's a little chunk from the abstract from this paper. Quote, In certain areas of our planet, there are big, wild animals. One big species is the moose, called elk in certain regions. Scandinavia has a very large moose population, and car-moose collision is a huge problem with many fatal outcomes. In order to reduce the number of injuries caused by passenger cars colliding with moose, a valid and repeatable method to arrange staged accidents is needed. A moose dummy was constructed after thorough research work. Yeah, so a, a couple of things. Like, first of all, like the moose is very large. The moose is much larger than a deer. And, and, and hitting a deer with an automobile is already a serious concern. But on top of that, you also have behavioral differences with the moose. Like a moose uh, has a different uh, or can have a different... Um, attitude toward vehicles that it, it, mm-hmm. it encounters. I've certainly heard tales of vehicles being charged by a moose before. Oh, yeah. And, and they're huge, which we, we will get to. We'll mm-hmm. get into some very specific uh, stats very soon. So, so the two primary goals of this research uh, were accuracy, and uh, they wanted the cars that collided with the dummy moose to have a comparable damage to real cars that collided with real moose. So, you know, I, I think most crash test folks have that goal in mind. And the second was repeatability. Uh, they wanted this moose dummy to be able to endure many crash tests uh, before it had to be replaced. Again, makes sense. These are very expensive to construct. You know, you want to get your money's worth out of them. So, uh, first and foremost, uh, animal collisions with cars are very common, Uh, they're dangerous, and they're also very unpredictable. Uh, Animals simply don't tend to follow the rules of the road, uh, no matter how many signs we put up for them. You know, cross here, you dumb deer, Uh, this is your crosswalk, but but they just don't pay attention to that. Yeah, add into that having a a disrupted environment in which there are fewer predators to actually keep the numbers of, say, deer down. Uh, yeah, it becomes, becomes a, a huge issue. No, no, this is their fault. We gave them a sign. <laughs> cross here. This is your crosswalk. And they just don't, they don't do it. So uh, now, now, moose collisions are particularly dangerous because they are very top heavy, very tall, and have relatively spindly legs for a creature of their size. So the average moose is about six feet tall at the shoulder, and it can get obviously much bigger than that. And they can weigh as much as 1,400 pounds. And uh, like I said, most of that weight is, uh, you know, pretty high up in the air. And uh, if anyone out there has ever like seen a moose in real life, uh, it's it's actually kind of, kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's awesome. It, it, it feels mm-hmm. shocking to see an, a creature that large in person. Yeah, I have I have very vague memories of, of my childhood in Canada of seeing uh, these uh, seeing a moose and it was quite I mean I wouldn't, wouldn't say it was terrifying but yeah it was kind of awe inspiring they're just so huge yeah for sure uh, so this study took place in Sweden where annually thirty thousand car accidents involving cloven footed animals occur that means ninety accidents daily and thirteen of those ninety involve a moose. Uh, unrelated to this study, uh, the roe deer is actually the cause of the majority of these collisions, but they are much smaller and lighter, so they cause far less damage. Those mm-hmm. 13 out of the 90 daily accidents are the ones that are, 
I'm not going to say almost always fatal, but are often fatal because like I said, 1400 pounds, six feet tall. And it's, it's, they're they're like a, a very heavy anvil on top of a very small spindly legged table. Like it's, it's just not, it's not smart, you know? (laughs) So our researcher then has uh, pages and pages of uh, research to determine like the physiology of the moose uh, to be replicated by the dummy, uh, formulas to determine the velocity during collisions, typical car safety practices that might be found in the average vehicle models, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So now they're going to start to build up this dummy moose. Uh, one version they, they take a bunch of water-filled hoses, you know, to try and get that weight mm-hmm. and that kind of like, oh, um, that that animal. <laughs> pu- push, but also solidity <laughs> uh, d- yeah. didn't quite work. Uh, they tried another version with wires and wood, but it, but once again, uh, it was a bit too fragile. Uh, they couldn't get the weight quite right with it. Uh, but ultimately, what ended up working were these big, thick slabs of rubber, kind, kind of cross-cut. Um, specifically, they were 36 rubber plates assembled vertically and assembled together through through, through locking wires. Uh, the best way I can describe this is, um, I remember as a child, there were these like model kits where where they were um uh, hundreds if not thousands of these little flat you know shapes that you would then stack on top of one another and it would build like a 3d model of something usually a bust or something like that do you know what i'm mm-hmm. talking about rob yeah i think so i had one of these of jar jar binks before <laughs> the film came out <laughs> <laughs> i didn't i didn't know who this character was uh after the film i perhaps would not have cared to build a model of this character <laughs> Uh, so you can see these pretty easily online too. If you just search um, uh, "crash test moose," I'm sure you'll be able to find them. Uh, you can also find actually some pretty good footage uh, on uh, television shows or things like that of people using them, and it's 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 pretty beautiful. Uh, you'll know we're talking about the same one if you see this. There's basically like it looks kind of like a swing set hanging above mm-hmm. the moose, and then there's a releasing mechanism with electrical magnets. That will hold the moose at like the correct height pre-collision, but then ensuring that the mechanism won't contribute to the results of the damage, it will be completely free and clear when the collision actually occurs. Because once again, these animals are a mystery, so the dummy cannot stand on these little spindly legs on its own. It needs a little support structure to hold it at the correct height uh, before the the car actually gets there. Yeah, the the sense I kind of get from the image here, it's like if you... If you 3D printed the torso of a moose, like from from rump to neck stump, yeah, and then you you hung it from like a swing set uh, structure <laughs> of some sort, yeah, and and to represent the legs, uh, they got these uh, uh, big wires hanging down, and they covered it with more rubber discs to represent mm. the uh, the weight and the size of each leg. And there there are subtle variations between front legs and back legs, but uh, but but you know. Uh, uh, the body was the big concern of this, you know, uh, right. more, more or less it's, um, it's that big weight. It's that big high center of gravity weights that just falls on the car. Cause I mean, if you think about it, um, here, here's more or less what happens. Uh, t- think about a typical car's height in relation to a moose and its anatomy, uh, especially when you think about like where a bumper is on a typical sedan. So, so the bumper is going to come in real low. It's just a couple of feet from the ground. It hits the moose in its tall, thin legs. And as a result, the animal will then rotate over the engine hood and crash through the windshield. 1,400 pounds 
which then releases all that weight directly onto the driver and the passenger, that's why it's often so deadly. It, it's, it's not because it's heavy. It's not because uh, they stand in the road and sometimes charge at you. It's because they're heavy and they're tall. So that our yeah. cars are almost like engineered to get hurt the most from this creature. It's, 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 a, um, it's a difficult thing. So uh, ultimately, uh, this dummy was successful. They were able to, you know, repeat their crashes multiple times with this giant rubber body. And also it was able to accurately duplicate the real life uh, damage from these creatures. So um, uh, currently, if you you see the, the, the images of this, I haven't seen any with a head yet. <laughs> they they mm-hmm. say that uh, eventually they do plan to build one with a head and antlers because apparently there's a pendulum-like effect when the body is hit, then the head follows afterwards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, oh. But that's secondary damage. Like I said, they're focusing on that big, hulking 1,400-pound body. And this study came out in 2001, so maybe they have done the head since then. Yes, yes, perhaps so. Hmm. Uh, so, so why is this funny? Um, it's a, it's a moose dummy. It's it's very specific. It's very silly, and uh, ultimately, moose are just kind of like an interesting, odd creature. Um, also, I can say that as as a lifelong fan of the TV show MythBusters, uh, I have to mention that this subject was also tackled in season six, episode one of that show. Oh. This was in their uh, Alaska special. Uh, specifically, what they did is they tested the myth that it's better to hit a moose going quickly rather than slowing down. So, so like, I, I believe in this show, they, they may have used the exact same crash test dummy from this um, from this, uh, uh, from this paper. However, I couldn't find the exact footage, so I can't confirm that. I'm just going based on memory. That myth was busted. <laughs> going really <laughs> fast. The, the myth was that if you're going really fast when you hit the moose, the, like, like the aerodynamic kind of curve of a car will just fling the moose directly over your car and you'll be perfectly safe. That is not the case. Like I said, it's 1,400 pounds. Nah, it's it, it, it's crushing that front of your car, unfortunately. you can Like I said, you can see footage. If you look this up on YouTube, it's wild to see. Um, so, yes, myth was busted. Don't think that going extra fast will make you safer when, when running into a moose. And uh, which brings me to why this is important. This can genuinely lead to saving lives, uh, particularly in areas like Scandinavia or the uh, Pacific Northwest regions of, uh, of, the, of North America. Basically, anywhere that a moose can be found easily, this data can you know, be duplicated and uh, given to car manufacturers so they can know which parts of their cars, especially cars that are sold often in these regions – where they need extra, you know, enforcement, you know, uh, can they make a moose proof windshield? Is that even possible? Will, will cars have like, not, not, not a cow catcher, but a moose catcher in the, in the near future? Uh, who knows? Who knows? But, but now they can test it over and over again and hopefully make safer cars for these regions that, uh, you know, uh, uh, I want to say moose proof, but that's probably a bit too ambitious. Well, I mean, the, the moose test is definitely a thing. Um, I just doing a little searching around. I found uh, this is a website called hotcars.com, <laughs> and they have an article, five cars that have passed Sweden's moose test <laughs> and five that failed. And yeah, these are all different vehicles. And you, they just look like normal automobiles. They're just uh, normal automobiles with enough like safety protocol and uh, like structural integrity, I suppose. And in some cases, larger looking vehicles, but sometimes not so large. Um that, that have done well. So I guess 
in a way, I, I, I'm not disappointed that there are no crazy Swedish moose-proof vehicles that look like the front of a train. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is great that they've been able to take this data and then use it uh, to ensure safety in various vehicles. Uh, this is a complete tangent, uh, but have you ever seen Land of the Dead, the George A. Romero film? I ha- is that the one with the tower and John Leguizamo? Yes, yes, exactly. Okay. I- I have, but I haven't seen it since it came out, so I'm a little foggy. There's a vehicle. There's a vehicle in in that film called Dead Reckoning, which is like their major like vehicle oh, for like yes. going out into the world, and it, it's basically zombie proof. And in the end of that movie, they all hop in Dead Reckoning and they drive to Canada, and that's like they're like, "Hey, we're we're okay." And I think you know what? I think Dead Reckoning is moose proof. <laughs> <laughs> Though that would be that'd be a real kicker. That'd be a real downer ending. Like they they escape in this vehicle, <laughs> then they hit their first moose yeah. and they're just done for the yeah, they could there. survive the zombie hordes but they can't survive a zombie moose <laughs> <laughs> shout out to astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples rob as the uh, the local host with allergies here they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies what was your experience like yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. 
Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, for the next one, I'm going to be talking about the Art History Prize. So I I suppose the other side of covering Ig Nobel award-winning studies is that sometimes it forces us to cover topics that we might not otherwise cover, um, at least these days. And, And that's certainly the case with the Art History winner for 2022. Uh, honored are this pa- it's this paper from 1986. It was published in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology by Peter DeSmet and Nicholas Helmuth, titled A Multidisciplinary Approach to Ritual Enema Scenes on Ancient Maya Pottery. So just to kick things off, why is it funny? Well, I guess it's supposed to be funny because it features enemas. Uh, but I also kind of have to, I, I mean, just in general, yes, I buy that logic. Uh, I didn't particularly find this one to be a humorous uh, inclusion, but I mean, everyone's sense of humor is going to vary on this sort of thing. And I suppose it's it's the juxtaposition too that if you are to see depictions of enemas, you don't expect it to be on your on your pottery on 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 your on your fine china. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Like that, it's art history, and that and and that's the thing because because the next question, why is it important? Well, it's kind of a, a double whammy here because first of all, the discipline of ethnopharmacology is highly fascinating. It can also be uh, illum- it can also be rather illuminating and potentially illuminating about uh, the use of various substances that Western medicine has not quite uh, come around to yet. And then also, we're talking about Mayan history here, Mayan history and culture. So. I feel like it is the sort of thing that shouldn't be ignored. So I'm not going to lean as much into the humor on this one, but it is all very fascinating, and I want to explain it all a bit, maybe demystify it. Hmm. 
So to kick things off, though, I feel like, well, we should have a little refresher on Mayan civilization. Uh, that kind of refresher is very much in order. So we're talking about the Mesoamerican civilization that occupied southern Mexico, Guatemala, and northern Belize. The Mayan pre-classic period is measured back to 2000 BCE, with the classic period running 250 CE to 900 CE, and the post-classic period running up until 1539 CE. This was an advanced civilization with agriculture, a sophisticated writing system, mathematics, a calendar, and astronomical systems, and a, de a highly developed architectural and artistic style. As we've discussed on the show before, of course, the arrival of Europeans uh, to, to this region constituted a kind of outside context event that decimated the civilizations and cultures of the Americas, but many aspects of Mayan culture survived and are cherished. I believe something like 30 Mayan languages are still spoken today, and there's been a pan-Maya movement uh, that's uh, an ethno-political movement in Mexico and Guatemala by often marginalized Maya people there. And of course, on top of this, there have been many efforts to better understand and celebrate the culture and history of the Mayans, despite all the Spanish initially destroyed. Okay, so that's your refresher on the Mayans. Now let's get into uh, a refresh on enemas. So strictly speaking, uh, an enema is an injection of liquid into the lower bowel through the rectum. And the most often reason for this procedure is to relieve constipation or to prepare for medical procedures. It's, it's simply stool evacuation. It's liquid-aided stool evacuation. Now, the mere act of waste leaving the body already kind of has a myriad of real and imagined benefits. Because obviously, waste leaving the body is a good thing. Uh, we, we kind of talked about this in the last episode, what happens when a scorpion loses its anus and it cannot relieve itself. Well, it, stuff builds up, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's not necessarily great for the scorpion. So uh, excess materials do need to leave the body after our bodies have extracted as much from the matter as can be extracted. But then on top of that, again, we have this, we have this deep history of humanity's attempt to, to understand our bodies and also conflating and confusing hygiene with purity at times. I'm reminded, particularly of a book, I had to pick this one off the shelf for this one a little bit, uh, by Virginia Smith titled Clean, A History of Personal Hygiene and Purity, which is a, a great read if anyone's interested in like the history of things like like just bathing rituals and so forth, sauna rituals, and how you have these sort of uh, dual columns of the ways that these things are actually good for us, the way they actually cleanse us. And then on the other side, our complicated understanding of purity, uh, spiritual purity, and also getting into various um, you know, pre-medical theories of how the body works. So for instance, Smith points out that according to Greek uh, humoral theory, uh, a strong bowel movement was an indicator of, of a healthy body ridding itself of dangerous waste. And if this didn't seem to be the case with an, an, an individual, if you didn't seem to, to, to be having good, strong bowel movements, well, then a whole host of, quote, herbal or mineral purges and emetics might ensue. Hmm. Now, coming back, to though, to the detail that the entire gut is all about processing organic material and absorbing water and nutrients from it and then displacing whatever can't be digested at all or can't be digested in a timely manner— uh, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise that even 
at the very final leg of the journey, the system is still capable of absorbing water. And due to the rectum's blood supply, the rectum can also absorb various substances and drugs, such as alcohol, tobacco, and, uh, and also um, various like hallucinogenic uh, materials as well. Now, at this point, I know some of you might be thinking of various like shocking headlines and scare headlines that have appeared in the media over the years. And I do want to just drive home that you should not try this at home. Uh, do not try to um, absorb things on your own recreationally uh, through your rectum. Uh, two major issues to keep in mind here is that, first of all, there's usually a lower threshold for the side effects of a given substance if it's taken rectally. And also, if you take it rectally, it bypasses your body's natural defense of vomiting. Uh, so the, the level entering your system might be too high, and you can't just vomit as a means of your body trying to rid yourself of that substance. This makes me wonder if there has ever been a, uh, a headline where someone, let's say, did get alcohol poisoning through uh, ingesting alcohol the wrong way. And uh, basically, the headline just said, wrecked him, damn near killed him. <laughs> Maybe so, in some of your more scandalous uh, uh, newspapers. And the, so the kind of newspaper you find in a barber shop, that kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if you get your news from like a mad magazine, perhaps, <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. Yes. Or the Crypt Keeper, I guess. <laughs> yes. But um, but but at any rate, this the same issue though. This is why it is sometimes an advantageous route for medication by medical pro uh, professionals because it's a way of bypassing nausea and vomiting. So if some sort of condition is keeping the individual from you know being able to really keep anything down, well then the uh, the, the rectal uh, application of the medication might be the best way to go via a suppository. Mm -hmm. So this is nothing new. The humans figured all of this out quite a long time ago. I was reading about this uh, a little bit. The ancient Egyptian uh, Ebers papyrus from 1550 BCE makes mention of, of medical enemas, and other evidence indicates that it was an important tool of ancient Egyptian uh, medical practice, and it was said to have been invented by the god Thoth, the divine physician and the god of secret knowledge. Now, I'm not going to go through the entire global history of enema usage, but I think if, if one had the appetite for it, one could probably do an entire episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on it. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff out there. There are numerous notable examples from historic writings, from Greece, from Babylon, from China, and of course, Western European cultures across the centuries. And the reasons for these practices break down into basic traditions of, of either cleansing or drug and alcohol absorption, or in some cases, mere sensation. So I'm not going not gonna to list through all these, but I did have two that I wanted to bring up because I, I was cross-checking some stuff in a book titled The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth and Other Curiosities from the History of Medicine by Thomas Morris. This is a really fun book, and it contains multiple mentions of enemas. Uh, some, sometimes you'll, you'll have a, even a very serious history book, and you go to the index, and they don't have anything about enemas. Uh, Clean, the book I referenced earlier, uh, really only has one mention of, of enemas in it, and it's not listed in the index, but Morris has your back on enema mentions, multiple mentions uh, in, this t in this tome, and I want to I highlight a couple of them. First of all, this is a headline from an 1858 study published in the British Medical Journal, 1858, quote, 
port wine enemata as a substitute for transfusion of blood in cases of postpartum hemorrhage. <laughs> Needless to say, this, uh, this, this may have seemed like a, a possible sensible alternative at the time, but uh, it turns out this would, this would not be the best practice. Yikes. I mean, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions about what their, 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 their structure of thought was back then. But was the idea like, oh, it's red wine. So, you know, kind of <laughs> looks like blood. What? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't get into this one super deep, but it, it does seem a little late for, for that kind of logic. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was presented as a possibility. Yikes. Morris also discusses a 1769 version of the Swiss physician Samuel Tissot's medical writings. By, and, and so this was a, like a Swiss physician's writings that then were then also uh, published. And to some extent, uh, it was a little foggy on what exactly is meant here. But essentially, this comes out again. Uh, it's from years earlier. But then it comes out again in 1769 with amateur uh, physician and founder of Methodism, John Wesley, also credited on it. I think basically Wesley was a fan of uh, Samuel Tissot's writings. And one of the recommendations in the book is to revive near-drowned individuals by not only blowing tobacco smoke into their lungs through their mouths, but also pumping it into, quote, the fundament. Hmm. Tissot advised using a pipe and bladder system to do this which was not a new method, as European doctors were already using this treatment as an attempt to revive the sick uh, elsewhere in Europe. I think it was, uh, there, there was a, a, a Dutch method in particular that used this technology. So this was not new. This was not an invention of Samuel Tissot, but he was very much advocating, yes, if you have somebody that uh, may have been underwater too long, then you might want to pump smoke into any orifice available to you. <laughs> wow. And we all have a new uh, euphemism, the fundament. The fundament, yes. Wow, <laughs> never heard that one before. Yeah, um, this—that's uh, uh, another thing. Some of these writings will—you'll um, find. I mean, it varies, I guess, from source to source, but some don't really want to get into this particular um, part of the human anatomy or into uh, various enema treatments. But I mean, I guess one of the things is, first of all, it, clearly humans have been using this technology for a very long time. And I guess if you're getting into situations of life and death, yeah, I mean, people were like, well, what can we try? What have we not tried? Have we tried pumping tobacco smoke uh, into their body by any means necessary? Yeah, wild. I mean, I, hey, trial and error, you know? <laughs> yeah. Over the years, it, it has benefited us that someone tried putting tobacco smoke in someone's fundament. Again, listening at home, do not attempt any of this at home. Meanwhile, in the Americas, however, where, of course, we're ultimately going with all of this, there's evidence that the Olmecs used enema technology to administer psychoactive substances, and smoke enemas were definitely used by various North American tribes, and this is also mentioned in Morris's book. But finally coming back around to the Mayans. So the Mayans certainly engaged in ritual intoxication. For example, they drank this substance called balche, which was made from the bark of the evergreen tree Lanchocarpus violaceus. It was soaked in water and honey, and then it was fermented. So they had this, this drink, this balche. Sounds good. Also, the honey apparently would have been from bees who fed on a high ergine morning glory. Uh, this according to F.J. Carad Artal in Hallucinogenic Drugs in Pre-Columbian Mesoamerican Cultures from 2015. 
So this is where it gets interesting with the Balche, though, and this is this is the way uh, Karad Artal uh, explains it. So Balche is alcoholic at the end of this process, but it's it's kind of low in its alcohol level. So you have to drink a lot of it to reach the desired level of intoxication. To the point, it sounds like, that you'd become sick well before you reach that point. Mm. So there are a lot of images in the Mayan art of individuals vomiting from the drink. And it also sounds like you would actually wear some manner of, of bag around your neck. Like essentially you'd have a barf bag on hand um, to use while consuming it. Now, of course, this, this wouldn't be the only right of using some sort of a substance that involved uh, vomiting. I mean, this is also common to things like uh, you, you hear about this in ayahuasca uh, ceremonies and so forth. Uh, so at any rate, very hard to reach this desired level of intoxication with this stuff. You're going to be vomiting. Also, other substances were also taken, including tobacco laced with datura. And in addition to balche, psychostimulants and hallucinogens were also consumed. And ritual enemas were also taken. And we see that on various surviving examples of Mayan pottery, including, uh, I included a picture of this for you, Seth. Uh, there is a ritual jar from the Met collection, and it's from the 8th to 9th century, and it seems to display wise women aiding or instructing men in the use of the enemas, uh, with the liquid for the enemas originating from a large jar, like the artifact itself here, with some sort of foaming liquid in it. And this is, I think, widely thought to be a fermented drink, likely balche. It's quite beautiful, too, the, this piece of pottery. Um, if you were just walking through a museum and you glanced at it, you wouldn't think twice about it. But then you you take that second look, and uh, yeah, it's it's even more interesting. Yeah, I, I don't remember this from any visit I've, I've had to the Met. It may not be something that is, of course, on, regularly on, on display. Uh, but it does seem like the kind of thing that one could easily walk by and you not realize that this is the subject of it. And this was perhaps the purpose for the artifact. I think this is an important lesson to all of us that we need to pay more attention when we're in the museums. <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, especially in the Met, there's so much to see, but at any rate, this would all make sense given the fact that again, Balche had a lower alcohol uh, content to it. And if you were to take it via enema, this would enhance absorption of said alcohol, and also it would bypass the whole barfing thing. Mm -hmm. Now, what, where it gets also interesting here is that you might hear all this, and it sounds um, hedonic. You know, it sounds like some sort of uh, uh, you know crazy ritual. Um, but according to Smith et al., this is the, the this is the the, the the authors of the Ig Nobel winning paper. The Mayans were largely understood to have been a contemplative people. So on one hand, this seems to have sort of presented a conundrum to some people studying the Mayans because it seemed maybe out of character that they would that they would you know do all these other serious minded things, but then engage in this uh, sort of ritual. Well, uh, and, and I should also add that Smith et al. also suggests that while the substance used may have well have been alcohol, some scenes also might suggest the use of tobacco and quote water lily or some other flowering plant as key ingredients. Hmm. At any rate, the, the argument, sort of the counter-argument, I guess, made by Kered Artal is that th this wasn't a hedonic practice. This was a spiritual practice, and it was typically conducted in caves. Uh, and these would have been considered places that were closer to the spirit realm, and that the consumption of these various substances, I mean, basically like a whole cocktail of 
mind and body altering substances uh, that would have included apparently psychoactive mushrooms as well, potentially. And these were widely used among Mesoamerican cultures. That all of this, the location, the ritual, uh, like the non-psychoactive aspects of the ritual, just the performative aspects of it, and then, of course, the psychoactive aspects of it, that this would all serve to bring you closer in line with the spirit world. And again, this would have been a spiritual ritual that everyone was engaging in here. Needless to say, the Spanish disapproved of all of this, even the production of Balche itself. So I, I, find, I found all this rather interesting. Um, again, not, not a topic I would think I would, I, would have, I would have normally researched on my own, but once you start getting into it and, uh, and taking it apart, uh, yeah, v- very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, the twists and turns uh, of this, it goes deeper than I would have, would have thought. It, it's it's yeah. not, not just a punchline. Right. But if that punchline forces people to look a little closer at it, then, then yes, the Ig Nobels have done their purpose here. <laughs> Snicker uh, at the study or the, or the paper, but then look closer and, and learn a few things. So uh, uh, I, I applaud them for this selection. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, we've got one last study today from uh, the 2022 Ig Nobel Award winners. This was the Applied Cardiology Prize. So uh, this had multiple contributors. Uh, We had... Prochakova, Syakshi, Barons, Lind, and Kretz. And this was for seeking and finding evidence that when new romantic partners meet for the first time and feel attracted to each other, their heart rates synchronize. <laughs> it's a bold claim. And I'm, I, I was fascinated by this just from the beginning. And I will say that's that's a bit of a sensationalist headline. I think it's actually a bit deeper than that. But but still, it's 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 pretty accurate. Yeah, because if you're just taking it face value, it sounds sort of like a scientific attempt to uh, understand something you saw in a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> it's like when a wolf sees a, a pretty lady, does do, do his eyeballs really stick out like that and his heart fall on the table and crawl around? And, and his tongue grows 12 sizes and, and unrolls yeah. like a carpet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> These are all facts. <laughs> So uh, to determine what drives attraction, the researchers measured the uh, physiological dynamics between real people on real dates, and this was outside of the lab environment. It was still a controlled environment, but it was not happening inside a lab. Uh, They gathered the data in multiple ways. Um, They had eye-tracking glasses with embedded cameras. They had heart rate monitors and skin conductivity sensors, uh, all happening at the same time while they did their multiple prodding and testing, which I'll get into. So so there were uh, multiple findings, three specifically. Uh, One, women were typically more expressive than males. Two, uh, men stared at women more than women stared at men. And most importantly, the uh, the point of this paper from from the Ig Nobel uh, point of view, three, visible signals that can be controlled, such as facial expression or gaze, did not predict attraction. Instead, attraction was predicted by synchrony in heart rate and skin conductance between partners, which is involuntary, unconscious, and very difficult to regulate. Hmm. 
So with a uh, modern dating culture the way it is right now, you know, you all just go go into your mind of either things you experience or your friends experience. Uh, you know, we're all utilizing dating apps and dating websites, uh, which has become far more common than it ever has been before. Uh, the three big consequences that this paper pointed out from that are that people are uh, dating strangers far more often. It's not just like your friend's friend or a coworker or whatever. It's just someone you met online. Um, so ergo, less time is spent with a potential partner before you decide on having subsequent dates. And that like the potential dating pool and the candidates for dating is much, much larger, but also kind of much more anonymous. Hmm. So, you know, with all these potential limiting factors with relationships that's happening in today's world, people still, you know, get attracted to each other. People still date. People still get married. So, so they, they really wanted to research what was the root predictor for attraction. And that was the goal of this research. So they set up a series of tests and they were fascinating and, and really wild. Uh, but um, I, I'm going to try and describe it, but they they had actual graphs in the paper. So look up the paper if you want to see some like artists renderings <laughs> of how this all looked. But basically, uh, they set up a blind date for the participants. They uh, set them up in this nice little cabin where they sit them down at a table. And then there's a partition in between them. Okay. And it can raise and lower on a timer or a, as the researchers needed. So with the, the there was a wide variety of circumstances, you know, the, the partition is up, the partition is closed. Now I want you to talk freely for two minutes. I want you to look at each other for two minutes, but not talk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All kinds of different um, tests and variables and controls. They, they all were there and they were all pointed out in this paper. After gathering their data from this, you know, blind date in a cabin with robots, uh, the researchers would then uh, ask the participants a series of questions about their date. Number one, do you think your partner would want to date you again? Number two, how attractive do you think your partner is? And number three, how attractive do you think your partner finds you? So here, here are the findings. Uh, with the question, do you think your partner would want to date you again? Only about 54% were correct. Uh, females were slightly more accurate than males. Uh, females got 56% correct, while males got 51%, but all pretty close to 50-50 overall, pretty much just, you know, flip of a coin. With the questions uh, involving attractiveness, their findings were pretty fascinating. The more attractive the subject found their partner, the more likely they were to think that their partner was attracted to them. I'm going to say that again, just to kind of be as clear as possible. The more attractive the subject found their partner, the more likely they were to think that their partner was attracted to them. Okay? So, so to sort of translate, like the more out of your league you find the other person, <laughs> statistically, the more likely you think that that person is actually attracted to you. Yes, yes. Hmm. Which, which is fascinating. I... I I, I would think that the, that the opposite was true, but but here we are. <laughs> now, maybe it's got something to do with like flood, like maybe it's like part of like our evolution of like flooding our body with endorphins when you are attracted yeah. to someone, just to give you the confidence to ask them out on a date or whatever. So, huh? Hmm. But uh, there was no correlation found in that at all, <laughs> and it was actually. It, it, 
found to be counterintuitive. Uh, uh, if you look at the graphs, uh, it's not exactly a 100% wrong to 100% right, but it's close to it. The graphs are moving in opposite directions. So so that is a wrong estimation. And uh, in general, it, it was just proven that people are not very accurate when reading a partner's romantic intentions, full stop. Like that's just the, one of the biggest things they found. Um, so ultimately, our biology is a much better judge of what's happening than our than our thoughts, than our than our brains, more or less. Uh, here's a chunk that's going to kind of explain that. This is directly from the paper. Quote: Intriguingly, people are often unaware of being influenced by others' affective displays. This is evident from studies showing that friends and lovers implicitly mimic each other's nonverbal behavior, such as gaze and facial expressions. Remarkably, a series of recent studies demonstrated that committed romantic partners synchronize their heart rate and skin conductance, and that the level of synchrony was positively associated with the quality of relationship emotional ties such as the amount of time spent together and the ability to identify the emotions of one's partner. Contemporary theories propose that behavioral and psychological synchrony results from the biologically mediated tendency to adapt to incoming social information. Specifically, during an interaction, individuals continuously exchange information via verbal and nonverbal routes, like a date, for example. Mm -hmm. Continuing. During this process, the sensory receptors convert vibrational energy from the partner's face and body to electrical impulses that the brain then uses to acquire social and emotional information. A recent fMRI study showed that the human brain possesses a neural mechanism which attracts individuals to partners who effective nonverbal behavior they can easily understand. From this point of view, Emotional expressions that people display do not only communicate emotions, they embody human feelings, build social bonds, and promote attraction. It's a pretty hmm. big thing to find. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I mean, that, that, that really does uh, – I, I know you and I are both, both married men, but it makes me think that I would approach dating differently knowing that, you know? Like, like just yeah. – just, kind of thinking about like how I feel and, and just kind of like duplicating the intentions and the subtle signals of, of my potential dating partner. Like it's just, I don't know. Thankfully I haven't had had to date someone in like 20 years, but I, it's still, it's a fascinating idea. Yeah. I mean, especially when you think about the things that prepare one to enter the dating world are it's, it's stuff you're, you're hearing maybe parentally just to varying degrees, depending on, on what the parental presence is like. Also socially, also things that are presented to you in media, but and in music, you know, obviously in movies and so forth. But, uh, but there's, there's never, I, I don't think there's ever like a, a time when someone says, all right, here's the science of what you're about to go out and do. I mean, <laughs> yeah. certainly when you get down to, uh, like physical sexuality, yes, hopefully there is going to be that in place. But in terms of like, this is actually what's going on when you're just even anticipating how another person feels about you. Yeah. So, so going back to the data, this is what they found to be true. Um, when these attractions were genuine, not based on what people thought, but actually mm -hmm. like, you know, is this person attractive? Yes. Is this person attractive? Yes. Completely separate, you know, isolated answers. They found that analyzing the heart rates during the dates uh, was far more accurate. I mean, like absurdly more accurate than just asking, you know, do you think they liked you? <laughs> like it was, it, 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 it's just off the charts different. 
Uh, this also went with uh, uh, skin conductivity, but the heart mm-hmm. rate was the part that they really focused on on this paper. Um, so, I mean, they, they even did some things, uh, once again, you should read the paper, it's fascinating, where they, uh, just, just to test their theory, they started matching the heart rates from randomly selected other dates to see if perhaps this was just something that happened to anyone on a date with anyone. But no, no, they, they didn't match up at all. Like, like it, it wasn't something that happened. There is a subtle, unconscious, uh, nonverbal pairing that's happening and and the closer that pairing occurs biologically the the more you are attracted to each other and it's fascinating that this might have much deeper implications that are provided just here in this paper but it's 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 a really interesting uh piece of information uh so so basically keep in mind that facial cues movements and words would sometimes attempt a similar mimicry in these dates but the heart was the best indicator for sure. Hmm. So why is this funny? It, it's it's kind of proving like an old adage, you know, you should listen to your heart. You know, if you're out on a date with someone, you know, it, it's it's funny because in so many um, instances of like, you know, romantic love, the heart really is like the, the center point. It's saying like, this is, you know, where love comes from, Valentine's, et cetera, et cetera, hearts, hearts, hearts. And then, like, you know, maybe being a bit cynical, we go, oh, it's actually from the brain, it's from personality, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, no. Actually, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Valentines are kind of right. The, the, your heart really <laughs> does factor in in a pretty substantial way, uh, at least in terms of uh, accurately predicting attraction. And and why this is important is that self-awareness and self-analysis is always a good thing. It's, it's important, first of all, to know that perhaps your um perception of whether or not someone is attracted to you you could be way off on that substantially way off and perhaps if you use heart monitors on yourself and your date then you'll have a more accurate representation uh if this is actually going somewhere huh so the, the roxette was right listen to your heart there's nothing else you can <laughs> yep. do. wait or roxette were right roxette was a duo now i'm remembering yes there we go roxette was not was not an individual but two uh swedish Pop stars, I believe. <laughs> and I think that uh, wraps up our Ig Nobels for 2022. I believe it does. Now, there there were some other winning studies from this year we're not going to cover here. If you want the full list, you're going to have to go to improbable.com slash IG. Uh, that's their website. Or just look look up improbable research uh, on in any uh, search engine, and it'll be one of the first two things that come up for you. They always do a great job of just on one page you can see all the winners since 1991. They have links to the various studies. Now, sometimes those studies are going to be hidden behind paywalls, or in one case, for one of the award winners this year, entirely in Japanese. There was, a, <laughs> there was one about like how do people turn a doorknob that I wanted to know more about, but I could not find an English translation of the study, so I just had to be like, all right, I just, I'm going to have to leave this one at face value. <laughs> So anyway, ch- check that out. Uh, uh, always a lot of fun. And of course, we have past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that have looked at winners from years past. So that's going to be it for this episode. But let's see, just to run through a few things here. Um, first of all, yes, core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind come to you on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, where you can find wherever you get your podcasts. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form Monster Fact or Artifact episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. 
Thanks, as always, to Seth for producing the show and, of course, on this episode, uh, co-hosting while Joe was out on parental leave. And if you want to get in touch with us about anything we discussed here, about other Ig Nobel Prize-winning studies, about past episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, present episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, or future episodes, just drop us a line at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.